0: Hello and welcome to another episode of What the Fintech, the podcast from the team behind Fintech Futures and the Banking Technology Magazine. I'm Alex Hamilton, Deputy Editor of Fintech Futures, and joining me this week are Sharon Kamathi, my Editor at Fintech Futures, and Ivan Glatsachev, CEO of Yandex Money. Hello. Uh, This week on the podcast, we're going to be talking about financial inclusion in Russia, a country with an arguable growing presence in the fintech sector. Before we get to that, however, it's the week in numbers. This is where uh, myself and Sharon, our guest, have gone through some news from the past week and picked out some headlines with some uh, talkative numbers in them. Um, Ivan, since you're the guest, why don't you let us know
1: what big news story has caught your eye recently? Uh, thank you, Alex. So uh, the story that really interests me right now is the uh, Chinese fintech Lufax, which targets uh, $3 billion in U.S. IPO. So Lufax Holding, which runs an online wealth management and peer-to-peer lending platform, is planning its IPO in the U.S. this year, and that's according to a person familiar with the matter. Uh, the decision to stick with the U.S. listing backed a recent trend where Chinese companies, mostly technology firms, have decamped and turned to Hong Kong and Shanghai for capital amid a regulatory backlash in the U.S., so, Lufax was founded in 2011 and was valued at uh, just over $39 billion during its last known funding round at the end of 2018. So, what's interesting about this news? Uh, the interesting is that Chinese tech companies are driving innovation competition. However, their services require significant localization in the West, in most time uh, due to cultural or regulatory peculiarities. For instance, Western financial system is uh, usually much more expensive and, uh, well, it delivers already satisfactory results to its customers. Uh, Big uh, Chinese fintech companies were mostly focused on servicing uh, Chinese travelers around the globe. Uh, They were experimenting with QR codes, AI into payments, uh, e-commerce, mini-apps, uh, et etc. et cetera. But uh, as it is, Chinese uh, model is uh, welcome in other countries only with super strong localization. For instance, um, uh, many Chinese companies try to enter and penetrate the Russian market. But still, uh, Chinese payment system, such as, uh, for instance, uh, well, recently launched they are not that very popular in uh, Russia for most uh, for most time, and still they are mostly focused on, as I said earlier, on the travelling uh, Chinese travelling side so usually Chinese services are easy they are cheap, but due to cultural uh, differences and attitude uh, towards making money in some other uh, parts of the world, it takes time for other countries really to assimilate them. Uh, Really, uh, I can also comment that recently, many uh, companies aside from the financial segment in China, such as, for instance, ride-hailing company Didi, or uh, e-commerce platform JD.com, or smartphone makers like Xiaomi, uh, also start to introduce their financial service products, including loans, wealth management, and insurance. Uh, in China and in uh, other countries as well. Interestingly, uh, this week, DD has opened its uh, representation in Russia, and they're going to start offering services, right-handling services in Russia as well. So it's no secret that such uh, big Western companies as Apple, Amazon, Facebook, Google, have aspirations in financial services. So the trend and the competition would be really, really interesting to watch.
2: Yeah, that's quite cool that you highlighted um, how it's happening in the Russian market as well. Because um, to be honest, I haven't really thought about the Chinese penetration in the Russian um, fintech market and financial services industry, um, especially because this story as well um, was mainly focusing on how there's loads of these um, new Chinese listings. There have been 25 new Chinese listings on the NASDAQ and New York Stock Exchange, according to Dealogic, just this year. Um, so they were sort of focusing it towards that angle. But yeah, absolutely, that's that's quite interesting to point out also the, the side that's happening in your space. And of course, this is not even the only one that we've seen so far this year that's quite big in the fintech space, because there's also Ant Group, um, which is the fintech arm of Chinese e-commerce giant Alibaba, which is planning a Hong Kong float as soon as this year. Um, so it's it's quite, um, I guess, I don't want to say interesting because I feel like that's so overused, but it is definitely something to highlight that they're both looking at not only just the US market, the NASDAQ and the New York Stock Exchange, but they're also looking at interim measures um, such as doing a Hong Kong float as well, uh, mainly because of the US-China tensions. Um, and over the weekend, the chief representative of NASDAQ China Um, said that he remains optimistic that more Chinese companies will be filing for IPOs in the U.S. in 2021, while they're likely to seek more options on the A-share or Hong Kong markets just in the interim uh, due to the worsened China-U.S. relations and the fact that U.S. politicians are now pushing the tensions into the financial arena, since U.S. Republican Senator Marco Rubio, last week urged the Trump administration to pursue tougher rules for Chinese companies listed in the US. Um, And they were looking at uh, tightening up the listing rules as well to restrict these Chinese firms from actually listing. Therefore, some of these firms are now looking at other options and looking at perhaps listing at home. Um, I wonder if they would ever consider listing in London. No, but maybe for the Brexit and all that stuff, they're probably a bit put off what do you think, Alex? Uh, anything
0: caught your eye with this story? Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that uh, jumps out to me is uh, the the amount of traditionally Western banks that have, that have jumped in to help out with the IPO: Bank of America, Goldman Sachs Group, HSBC, J.P. Morgan Chase. They've all done work on the float, and obviously they would do with the deal being of it being this large at three billion. Uh, and yeah, I think it's it shows a not so necessarily surprising, but a willingness from both sides of the market to make something like this work with a, a Chinese giant like this, uh, attempting a big US float. And I think it perhaps is something that we'll see uh, more of in the near future. Uh, but what we'll do now is move on to uh, my news and numbers this week. It's a small number, unfortunately. I've, uh, I've, I've dropped down again to the small numbers and it's, uh, it's uh, 30%. My number is uh, the percentage drop in applications for the UK's Financial Conduct Authority, their sixth regulatory sandbox. So uh, every year, the FCA invites people into uh, invites promising startups to pitch to uh, test their products in its in its uh, regulatory sandbox. And for the year 2019, that's those who applied in 2018. uh, Just under 100 companies applied to the cohort, but uh, that number. Applications for 2020 uh, dropped to 68. Now, the first thing you might want to blame that dip on is you might think, you know, well, obviously because of the coronavirus pandemic. But actually, uh, most of the applications for the sandbox, in fact, nearly all of them, were uh, sent in by the by December the 31st, 2019, well before we'd had any widespread disruption from the virus. Now, uh, our reporter, Ruby Hinchliffe, uh, she went up to the market and got some input from a number of firms as to why the figure is lower than usual. And she got she got a couple of answers back. Some thought that the the dip is because of a general mm-hmm. downward trend in fintech funding and that fintechs are, as as a consequence, less confident of their ideas, reaching the level of maturity necessary to participate in a regulatory sandbox of this kind. Uh, Others blamed uh, the FCA and a a perceived lack of accessible information as to the results of the FinTech uh, sandbox and how the startups have done once participating in it. Um, There's another angle as well, perhaps, in that uh, the FCA decided it was going to theme its current cohort around the, the, uh, the subject of accessible finance and a greener economy. Um, which may have had its own impact on the the number of applicants who perhaps didn't think that their their product necessarily fit in with that remit. Uh, it would certainly be interesting to see how the application numbers continue to move, especially this year and all the turmoil we've had, whether they'll continue trending downwards or back up. And I think similarly, it will be interesting to see the wider trend in fintech funding emerge from the COVID-19 crisis. But, um, I mean, Sharon, what... We, we tend to cover the, the up-and-coming fintechs quite a lot of fintech futures, but what, what, what are your thoughts on the, this dip in numbers?
2: Yeah, I mean, it was interesting to see the follow-ups on Twitter um, about the story. Um, some commented about how tired they were of incubators and accelerators and your startup campuses hiding behind a one-digit acceptance rate as a qualifier of success or exclusivity. Um, and that founders should systematically be asking future raise metrics, post-program, and the contractualization rate with any corporate partner. Um, And for me, this also reminds me of when speaking to a lawyer based in, um, I believe it was Miami, and he was essentially highlighting how most of these fintechs who go into incubators or accelerators forget the fact that their IP and um, the thing that makes them unique and, you know, their legal patents will essentially be owned by these major conglomerates who they're working alongside with. So if they think that it's going to work out, then they need to think again, because sometimes they need to look deeper within the terms and conditions of their contracts as there will be disputes. And he did highlight a couple of disputes that he was working on as well, but didn't want to say which ones, but they were major banks, such as Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, and also MasterCard has been involved in, in quite a lot of these incubators, and some have kicked back um, and pushed back uh, in terms of their patents and IP. Um, so, so that's the other angle that I was thinking about, but it is um, quite the highlight about them pushing towards a more green economy and picking out exactly what themes they want as well. Um, Ivan, what do you think about it?
1: Oh, uh, it's, uh, really interesting that you mentioned the, um, IP and, uh, patents. Cause I think, uh, that really, well, it, 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 in my opinion, it really has, uh, something, uh, to do with that. Uh, over, over, over this week, uh, at least what we see in Russia, there is one big news, uh, that, uh, Amazon, uh, used to, uh, used to screen, uh, lots of startups during its M&A process and then, uh, were using its uh, IP uh, rights for its own other uh, products as well. So I think that this, I, I, I don't know whether it's true or not. First of all, it's uh, its in the news. That's how it's uh, well, uh, said here in Russia. But I think that it uh, really has something to do with the drop of application because, uh, I mean, this is something that is very core to your business. You have to protect it. And if by participation in a various uh, sandbox environment uh, makes it uh, easier or at least uh, makes it easier for you to part with your IP rights, then you have to double think about it.
0: Definitely something to keep an eye on. Um, now, I know for our, our third story, um, Sharon's going to be sitting down in the corner of putting various CEOs on blast and it's, uh, it's card again this time, isn't it,
2: Sharon? Yes, it is again. I'm sorry, I can't get enough of it. So my number is sneakily 2015. um, And it is the year because German prosecutors have arrested Marcus Braun again, having found that Wirecard's accounting fraud started as early as 2015. Now, the former Wirecard chief executive, Marcus Braun, has been accused by Munich prosecutors of committing a multi-year fraud and arrested for a second time following the June collapse of the German payments group. Now, the FT reports that prosecutors suspected Wirecard's accounting fraud started as early as 2015, and other suspects allegedly agreed to infiltrate Wirecard's revenues in an attempt to deceive investors. Um, so once a standard bearer for Germany's tech sector, it collapsed last month um, following the $1.9 billion of cash on its books that probably did not exist. And investigators have also widened their investigation into the downfall of the company to include other former executives, such as Jan Marcelek. Now, Jan Marcelek is genuinely, to me, someone that you can find in some sort of Bond movie, or maybe he's trying to cosplay some sort of um, version of Leonardo DiCaprio's Catch Me If You Can. But this is a guy who is very ominous, um, and he is on the run, can't make this up. Um, so the FT collaborated with uh, the investigations group Bellingcat, um, who was also working alongside uh, the German publication Der Spiegel. And they reported that he was last seen in Minsk in Belarus. Now, this just came out a couple of days ago, um, considering that uh, he was initially reported to be somewhere in the Philippines, which is where they lost him. Um, and he was reported as missing. But he is on the run. He is wanted by um international uh prosecutors and um criminal investigators so yeah if you see him somewhere Jan Maslik could be behind you so keep your eyes peeled um but it's strange because um he was also connected in other uh, sort of random bits and bobs so the investigation revealed that they also had ties to Russia's FSB projects in Libya and connections to Austria's far right political party the Freedom Party of Austria And despite all of this drama, the stock market has acted like nothing even happened. So five dozen suitors with the backing of more than 130 investors have lined up to buy what's left of Wirecard AG. And the company's stocks have soared as much as 37.5% in Frankfurt on the 27th of July. That was just yesterday for us. Um, So it's strange that there's such a disconnect between reality and these investigations and also what's happening in the stock market.
1: But anyway,
2: enough from me. What do you guys think about this scandal and its constant revelations,
0: Alex? I mean, it's it's going to make a fantastic Netflix documentary. I mean, that that's that's right? what we know. Uh, it, for my money, it's yeah, it's it's the separation between the antics of various executives and their jet setting. Where in the world is Carmen Sandiego adventures? That's a reference for those who grew up in the nineties. Uh, it, it can be separated from the from the business itself and i think the issue is, is that you can't when it comes to a business like wirecard which is so in many ways deeply ingrained in a lot of companies technology that there's probably a lot more risk in just letting it crash and burn than trying to step in and save it in some way and it'd be interesting to see how the company moves on from this from from all of this these headlines because there have been so many headlines um and how it rebuilds its trust amongst its clients many of whom we've reported on have since completely moved off the wirecard infrastructure uh, you know and, and whether they can build build up a, a client base again or rebuild that trust again is something that will probably take a long time before we can even have any any thoughts on it but it is certainly a, it's a wild story and probably one of the wildest stories of the year. I think perhaps if the pandemic weren't ongoing, this would be grabbing all the headlines. But Ivan, um, have you got any thoughts on, on this this crazy
1: story? Well, it's. Uh, I mean, I think you use the right word that it's crazy story, and um, or rebuilding. I mean, like in financial industry, trust is the. Keystone of all the, you know, client relationship, of all the operational models, of all the business models, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, this, um, I can, I mean, the story with Wirecard, I can only compare to uh, Enron story, which happened like almost 20 years ago. And that was the downside of that company, which, uh, ceased to exist. And, um, well, uh, I, I don't know what's going to happen uh, in the future with Wirecard. Uh, however, uh, I seriously doubt that it would, if it would recover, uh, it would recover to its uh, present state in some kind of well, short to middle uh, time period. I think if it will recover, and I say, I uh repeat the word if uh it would take uh lots and lots of time to uh, rebuild the customer portfolio. Then speaking about just I mean gossiping about uh Jan Marsalik, uh, I really liked how uh, Sharon called him like the character from you know from the movies so catch me if you can. So the greatest gossip on him is that after traveling to Minsk, he actually then traveled to Russia. And uh, apparently he is uh, hiding somewhere uh, in well, in Russia. It's a big country. I don't know seriously if that's true or not. Hopefully, well, it's not somewhere behind my back.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's literally behind
1: you. <laughs> so, yeah, but uh, well, I I I feel safe in my office. I feel safe. Uh, <laughs> Got to well, keep your
2: eyes peeled outside. <laughs>
1: But we're also following the story. It's really like a detective uh, book or detective movie, you know. So well, I hope to see. Uh, I hope to see how it ends. Well, sooner or later. So it's uh, pretty interesting. <laughs>
0: Well, now we enter part two of the podcast, where we open up the discussion on a specific industry topic. As I mentioned at the top of the podcast, we are going to talk with Ivan about financial inclusion in Russia uh, and the trends driving the adoption of new payments methods in that country. Uh, Before we get into that, though, uh, I wanted to touch on a story from uh, a few weeks ago, uh, Yandex and Sberbank recently announced they will be going their separate ways after um, a decade-long partnership. So I thought I'd take this opportunity to ask, Ivan, um, perhaps you'd like to tell us how that process has, has evolved over the past few weeks, uh, what the future holds for, for your company, and where you plan to go from there.
1: Uh, yes, sure. So basically, last week, the deal uh, was executed between uh, Yandex and Sberbank, And according to this deal, uh, two assets were uh well we're split so uh yandex money uh after the deal uh, is now hundred uh, percent owned by Sberbank, and uh yandex market that's another company participating in the deal is now 100 percent owned by yandex so what does it mean for our company yandex money well first of all uh yandex money uh for the past seven years yandex money uh was a uh, joint venture between yandex and Sberbank. initially in 2013 Sberbank has uh, purchased 75% uh, stake in the company. So basically, in terms of many operational uh, matters, in terms of many business uh, matters, in terms of our business model, nothing really changes. So the majority stakeholder acquired 25% and now owns uh, uh, the full company. However, uh, obviously, uh, we're looking uh, into developing uh projects with Sberbank more closely than we're able to do that during the past years we're looking for synergies uh we're looking for uh some specific changes maybe in our business model where to enhance it so i guess in the next uh one or two months they would be really uh critical uh and uh, well uh, during the fall, uh, we're planning to announce some new plans on the uh, further development of our company.
2: Well, that looks like there's some interesting stuff going on, especially um, in the, the midst of all this pandemic stuff, but at least something good is happening. It sounds like the synergy is working out. Um, and the FT also reported that the split evolved uh, due to Yandex's plans to expand its tech services Um, Now, do you think the split happened because of growing competition to snap up the right payments market in Russia? Is it something else?
1: Um, I think it's more than that. It's more than just the payment market in Russia. Well, actually, it's no secret that both Sberbank and uh, Yandex for the past several years were developing more uh, into the like uh, more like an ecosystem. So Sberbank strategy is to become, or to shift from just financial institution, from being the biggest bank in Russia to the biggest ecosystem in Russia. And actually that uh, works the same for Yandex. They're much more than just a search engine. So uh, now uh, both Sberbank and Yandex are competing in such industries as rate-hailing. Uh, Yandex has Yandex Taxi. Citibank has invested in the company uh, uh, called Citimobil and acquired a uh, stake there. They're competing in media streaming, so both companies have uh, media streaming services where you can watch uh, films, uh, concerts, uh, etc. There is the food delivery assets. Uh, Sberbank has stake in uh, such food delivery company known as uh, Delivery Club in Russia. Yandex is uh, developing its own delivery uh, called Yandex Yeda. There is competition in cloud services, in the info services, and in many, many other services. So it's really an ecosystem competition. Uh, and at a uh, well, specific, uh, specific time, just both companies decided to uh, split their assets where they were both uh, shareholders and uh, concentrate on developing of each own uh, system. So since uh, payments uh, is more closer to Sberbank, then Sberbank decided to increase its uh, stake in Yandex money up to uh, 100%. I think that was the the real reason it's ecosystem competition. I
2: guess that makes sense. Um, So how ripe is a market in Russia for innovation and inclusion considering the country's market has a small number of highly capitalized, powerful banks and relatively few challengers?
1: Well, you know, I think that uh, Russian uh, payment market in general is on par with uh, European or uh, with the US market in terms of most products, services, and even is sometimes ahead of them in terms of customization of those products for uh, B2B or B2C segments. For instance, uh, we have instant money transfers that can be done from different banks by phone number. Uh, we have B2B payments for legal entities. Uh, e-wallet companies are introducing multi-currency wallets with uh, smart multi-currency AIs, which you know uh, trigger the uh, currency in which you pay with, so you're not charged in rubles if you pay for something in US dollars, for instance. Uh, there are companies which uh, provide online loans or pay for everything from bills to groceries, etc., cetera, et cetera. Uh, You can even buy cars fully online. For instance, during the pandemic, many car companies such as Renault, uh, BMW or Tesla has launched uh, these online deposits for new cars that you can reserve online and then receive uh, delivered to your, uh, to your doors. So, basically, the uh, market is very uh, ripe in terms of technology. And one reason why it's uh, developing so fast, I guess, is that the legacy platform of many players of this uh, market, mostly banks, is relatively young. Uh, Russian banks have started to enter into the finance uh, business in the uh, beginning of the 90s. Most banks have built their platform in the beginning of uh, 2000s, So that's like 15 to 20 years ago. And that's uh, much more younger platforms than many Western banks have, which they inherited from 80s or 70s. So the legacy platform is young. Then uh, the customer market is really demanding. Uh, Although the population of Russia is uh, close to 140 uh million people 130 140 million people but uh, for instance the biggest uh bank in Russia Sberbank has over 96 uh million of clients and 70 million of them use uh its uh, uh app uh mobile banking app or uh web uh application that means that almost you know half of the population of uh, Russia is online with uh, just one big bank. And you can imagine what numbers in terms of uh, penetration, in terms of e-commerce and uh, internet other banks have, which will, uh, in, in in their turn, uh, access the other half of Russian population. So, this is probably, uh, those are the most uh, important uh, things. Uh, I would uh, also like to mention the third case, which is also uh, quite important for the development and uh, of technology and inclusivity. That's probably the e-wallets. Uh, e-wallet business uh, started to develop in Russia since the late 90s. Our company uh, attracts itself from 1998, when basically Yandex Money was uh, founded. Back then it was under a different name, was acquired by Yandex in 2002 and then it's changed its name to Yandex Money. But uh, we're tracking our history to more than 20 years ago and uh, e-wallets initially have played a big part in uh, financial inclusivity and uh, development of financial services, financial tech platform in Russia. And even now, uh, e-wallets still remain as the second most uh, uh, popular method of payment in the uh, e-commerce and, in, and on the internet with uh, bank cards obviously being the first uh, most popular payment method.
2: Yeah, and we were talking about trust earlier on as well. So where does the responsibility lie for increasing trust in the financial sector? Is it government, banks, regulators, or fintechs?
1: Well, I, I guess that all parties should be involved because for the customer... Uh, really what's uh, what matters is that uh, services should be rendered to him in the most convenient and the safest way possible. It's really that the client is the center of it all. It's uh, not the product itself. And then all the uh, above-mentioned institutions have to be, well, first of all, responsible for uh, continuous improvement. And uh, they also have to be uh, responsible for delivering the right product or maybe changing their uh, business focus along with the change in the uh, customer requirements. You know, it's um, really interesting. Uh, I mean, during this pandemic period, I've been uh, monitoring various companies around the globe. And uh, one example that really caught my eye is uh, Square. Uh, In the US, it was known before the uh, pandemics, it was known as a payment payment. Uh, more or less like a payment system. But during the pandemics, it has uh, became or it started to shift to become a true online bank with its cash app application uh, to uh, distribute stimulus payments from the U.S. governments. uh, And it has really grown the number of its uh, users. Uh, I mean, the statistics say that it has grown from 3 million of users to uh, 14 million of users. So that's a great example of how The company, the fintech, uh, and the regulator has allowed for something uh, to, you know, to appear in these difficult times and to change its focus and better serve uh, the customers.
2: Should financial inclusivity programs focus on increasing long-term investments or snappier projects to get as many people banked and money literate?
1: Well, I think it, it it it's also the combination of both. Uh, the customers, they seek uh, one simple thing. They seek uh, personal benefits. It could be investments, it could be discounts, it could be favorable rates, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So I think um, during the first wave of, uh, let's say, uh, financial and uh, fintech Uh, companies coming into our lives was just to get some more options to spend, you know, to receive some loans, special offers, discounts, maybe some kind of uh, loyalty elements. However, what we see now, what I call the second wave uh, of financial inclusivity programs is it's more or less about uh, finance management. So we don't just need to pay or receive a loan. That's something that's already taken care of. But we want to have an easy tracking of our incomes or spendings. You know, we want to understand what's our rewards or cashback really uh, well, really matter. We want to receive some hints about uh, what we do financially every day. And that's where AI is already leveraging its benefits. So um, I think that all of this has to be under the hood, under the hood of specific uh, Service a specific pro- uh, product, and of course, it, uh, all this technology have to be accumulated and, let's say, presented via single interface uh, for the customer. And then, then that's uh, well, the miracle uh, would uh, happen, and financial inclusivity would increase.
0: Well, here we are at the last segment of the show, and that means it is time for the Fintech Jail. This is where our guest submits a term, a trend, a technology, or something else in the industry that gets on their nerves, irritates them, and tells us why it should be locked away in our jail for good. Uh, Sharon and I will then debate whether it deserves a place in the jail or to be set free to forever roam the countryside. Uh, So, Ivan... What term uh, from the industry do you think needs to be locked away?
1: I really think that we should lock away the omnichannel focus. You know, every time that, uh, like say, FinTech says that we're focusing on omnichannel experience, to me it sounds like we're focused on breathing. I mean, come on, you know, breathing is something that every one of us must do, must have, otherwise we just, well, bad things happen to us. So you know this is so omni channel is really really I would like to put to jail because this is not the area of uh, focus anymore this is just a must have feature which should be under the hood and there shouldn't be any kind of dispute debate or showcase uh made of
0: That's uh that's definitely an interesting one do you um do you then see a lot of people uh, talking about omni channel
1: as as a as a unique selling point then Ivan uh well i see uh I, I see many fintechs yes uh talking about it how you can switch from you know uh let's say uh application one device and finish it on the another device so you can uh, unite several uh uh devices under one account name let's say and uh, perform something uh in one uh, w- once again one de- device and finish on another but This is very basic. I mean, you know, this is not uh, doing something over multiple interfaces is not the selling point right now. I mean, you can uh, access your email from any type of device and it stays the same. I mean, this is something that Google or uh, Mail or Yandex uh, has already been doing for years. Uh, Fintechs uh, have caught uh, up on this maybe a decade ago. But once again, uh, now we're so much surrounded by different uh, interfaces that we communicate with our applications. It can be a telephone, it can be uh, our car, uh, it can be our uh, work computer, it can be our smart TV. That, you know, uh, showcasing the omni-channel is, uh, I think, uh, like breathing right now it's not something to be a differentiating factor
0: interesting and Sharon, what are your thoughts on on the channel going in in the jail
2: yeah i like it i like the sound of it going to jail because the way you've described it is just like something super basic that everyone's already doing um so to try and sell it as something interesting and unique just isn't working chief it's like if outlook was like and now we're everywhere look at our on the channel it's like well yeah i can use you on my phone my laptop so (laughs) yeah i i'm happy with it going into the jail i can get 10 years until someone can come up with a better way of using it in a phrase or sentence yeah i'm i'm happy with it what about you are you you seem to be on the fence
0: no no i i think that's um very persuasively argued by Ivan that it's it's certainly become the the norm. Um, it seems you know it, it'll probably as much as we want it. We even though we put it in the jail, I don't think we'll stop seeing it. Unfortunately, it's something like cloud. You know where the cloud cloud was supposed to be the norm about seven years ago, but people are still talking about it like it's a new thing. So uh, I yeah let, let's put it in there and 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 hopefully uh, Ivan you'll start to see a little bit less of it in the near future.
1: <laughs> thank you, thank you, yeah, I, I, I really hope for that, I'm looking forward.
0: Well, that's all we have time for, for this episode of What The Fintech. Thanks to Sharon Ivan for joining me, but before we sign off, uh, we've got a chance to plug some websites,
1: socials, products, all sorts. Um, Ivan, perhaps you want to go first, anything you'd like to plug? I think that the uh, one uh, side that I'm really proud of, actually, two sites. Uh, I'm really proud of it. It's uh, money.yandex.ru and kasa.yandex.ru uh, that's our B2C and B2, uh, B2B platforms used by uh, merchants and uh, our e-wallet holders uh, across Russia and in some other countries. Uh, I wanted to say worldwide. Well, it's not really worldwide, but uh, some other countries. So that's uh, that's what I really want to showcase.
0: Awesome. Uh Sharon, what about you? where, where can we find you online? What do
2: you want to plug? You can find me at FinTech Kits. That's FinTech, the way you spell it, and then K-I-T-S, like a football kit. <laughs> Plural. And um you can just find me on LinkedIn and just hit me up. Just like you always do, guys. You're you're out here with like zero mutuals and just hitting me up. Why not? <laughs>
0: Excellent. Uh, And as for me, you can find me on Twitter at at adhamilton91 and on LinkedIn just by searching my name. Uh, And I'm going to plug my website again because I spend a weekend putting it together and reformatting it. That's alexanderhamiltonrights.com. Give it a look uh, so I can justify spending loads of money on the hosting fees. Uh, As for Fintech Futures, you can find us online at www.fintechfutures.com or uh, on Twitter at at fintechfutures. You can also find us on LinkedIn just by searching the name FinTech Futures and looking for our lovely logo with the two Fs. If you like this podcast and our other episodes of What the FinTech, then subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or your favorite podcasting service. Uh, we'd also really appreciate it if you could help other listeners find our podcast by writing a review or recommending us to a friend. And as always, we thank you very much for your support. Uh, We'll see you soon for another episode of What the Fintech, but until then, goodbye.